I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Clive and Claire Chesson. G'day, guys. G'day. Hi. Now, Clive, I've known you for many years, and back in 2000, I did a course called Environmental Management, and you were my lecturer all the way back then. And you were a big influence on me, and I learned a lot from you, and you're probably responsible in part for why I do this. So there you go. <laughs> That's pleasing to hear. Not for us, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> and Claire, I have to ask you as well. You were a big part of this project that you guys are involved in, identification and photographing of the plants of this region. Yes, it all started off at a time when I wasn't working for long hours and I would spend time up in the hills wandering through the parks and I'd ring up Clive and say I'm in such and such a park and I'm wondering what I should be looking for here I'm on such and such a track and let me know what I should be looking for and he'd answer me and then I'd go home at the end of the day and say now this is what I found when I was out this 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 and this and I'd say, you should really come with me. It's no good me just going by myself. And eventually he decided he'd retire and we've gone together since then. Um, I'm just part of the support group and Clive is the botanist. She finds most of the plants. <laughs> <laughs> I have to work out what they are. <laughs> That's the hard part, isn't it, finding out what they are? But finding them, without that... She has a good eye. It's a whole different thing, isn't it? You get your eye into trees, to grasses, to orchids, to lilies, to everything else. And you guys aren't just plant people. I should say that you guys know about mammals and birds and the whole ecosystem. But why did you choose to focus on plant? Ah, uh, A, that they're interesting. B, that there are so many of them. And... And they don't run away. <laughs> <laughs> don't have to chase them. Yeah. No, no. It's guilt-free specimen collecting too, isn't it, when you've got a plant compared to getting a specimen of a lizard or a frog? We uh, do this by photographing the plants. Photography. Yes. You do need permits to take plants. You do, don't you? A permit to collect native plant specimens, yes. yeah. And I don't think you can even do it from a national park either, can you really? Or maybe you can, I don't no. know. No. No, it's no. becoming more and more restricted. Yeah, OK. But they are encouraging people to take photographs rather than taking specimens. Well, these days the cameras are fantastic. You don't really necessarily need to take a specimen, I wouldn't have thought, all the time. No. Well, we'd like to demonstrate that if you take enough photographs from the right views so that you cover all aspects of the plant structure, then you can actually show things clearly that become compressed in, in a herbarium specimen, which is flat on a sheet and it's been pressed. And, of course the plant still looks alive. With the resolution of the cameras and lenses now, you can just look at a photo and keep zooming in on it on a good digital monitor on your computer and keep looking in and looking at finer and finer structures. But um, the reason why we chose plants, Claire and I have both been interested in everything living since we were little tackers. She goes back in uh, natural history further than I do. She was mad keen on fossils and used to go on field trips with Hans Mitchum and Ben Flounders and you'll see their names on quite a few of the Ediacara fossils. Some of the oldest fossils on the planet. She was on field trips with them as a child discovering the Ediacara fauna you see so much of in the museums now and uh, you were mad keen on collecting anything that moved. <laughs> when we first met, she it was sort of a few days later, she pulled out this um, photograph of her holding a King Brown snake. At that stage, many people thought that if you milked a snake, it was safe. <laughs> and that's why they passed the King Brown snake around to, to children. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> but we were told to hang on 
tightly and not let it go. And <laughs> so great we all survived. Yeah. <laughs> That's great I don't think it was realised then that just as you can produce a saliva very quickly, snakes can you know, produce venomous saliva very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and even that little touch that would have been on the fangs at that yes. point would still hurt you. Yeah. <laughs> they reckon venom glands evolve from salivary glands, don't yes, they? Yes, yes. That's my understanding of it. And uh, it was fascinating to see um, the evolution of the snakes' um, defensive and hunting things in the form of fangs, you know. You've got sort of like back fang molars with which need lots of chewing. Anyway, I shouldn't be talking about this with you. You're reptile people. You're the herpetologist. (laughs) (laughs) But what impresses me most is the spitting cobra that can, you know, bring down prey from a distance by shooting venom at it or else it can just go up and bite the thing (laughs) and inject venom. With that, how does it, like, the venom has to get into the system if they're spitting it? Is this aiming for the eyes? Is that what they're doing? Lots of blood vessels. Lots of blood vessels in the eye. It gets Mm. in easily. They always used to say that they're such an amazing shot, they get you every time. But yeah. if you watch her in slow motion, they actually do a circular motion. Yeah, that's to make get sure you of at it. some point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like when a snake yeah. bites you and they it always hits a vein. <laughs> yep, it's going to hit a vein because yeah. the, the way their teeth are, like, yeah. it's always so the, the spray the, pattern. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm. you know, th- that impressed me long, long ago. And I've always been interested in reptiles, but we're interested in anything that's living, aren't we? Yes. Uh, not so much into bacteria, though. <laughs> 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 but, uh, you know, uh, Claire keeps taking photographs of fungi. And uh, I said, you know, that's outside the scope of our project. <laughs> it's vascular plants we're interested in. And. Uh, um, and, you know, we just hope to use that group to show the tremendous diversity of life and all the different life history stories. Any group of organisms, you can look at the different life history, you know, why structures have evolved, how they assist the organism live its life. But we chose plants because the beautiful photographs that have been done of birds and reptiles seem to be missing from our local bush the plants hadn't been done you see lots of beautiful wonderful photographs of garden plants and flowers so we thought well our vehicle to bring um, the diversity of life to the public will be plants well that's a big undertaking though isn't it because we have a massive diversity of plants don't we yes the vascular plants a number of native ones according to things i looked up i thought i'd better get the latest figures after talking to you the other day it's thought to be about 3500 species of uh, when i say vascular plants they're the ones with veins in it mosses don't have veins the water goes up and down grooves on the outside of the plant anyway 3,500 species, plus or minus a few for the state. 1,500 for the Adelaide and Mount Lofty ranges, 1,500 species they estimate. And um, in the region that we're working with, there'll be probably more than that because we decided to have some boundaries um, that showed greater diversity. So our boundaries are from the sea down to um, the Murray Mouth, up the river to Blanchetown and across to the coast near Wild Horse Plains. And uh, what we wanted to do was two things. We quickly found that some things that are very rare on the Flurio and in the Mount Lofty Ranges now, if you just go on the dry side of the range, they're much more plentiful. The eastern side of the Mount Lofty Ranges, which doesn't fit into the Mount Lofty botanical region and uh, also a lot of the aquatic ones that are are quite rare can be found along the Murray still and so it made a lot more sense we got more species per genus for to compare and contrast and um, some things were a lot easier to find we could get better specimens I love how you're taking photographs and your plan is to make them accessible to the public because if you're going to talk about mammals or you're going to talk about reptiles, you've got plenty of people that just want to know about it. But 
we want people to care about biodiversity because that's what protects their mammals and protects their reptiles. Steph. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, just, uh, just to go back a step, we had Erin Fagan-Jeffries, didn't we, on the show? And her, her thing is like parasitic wasps. And she's mm. really sweet, lovely, passionate about parasitic wasps. She that's can't a, be. She, uh, there's <laughs> got to be something wrong with her to, to, <laughs> to look into those parasitic wasps. It's a tough wasps. sell, isn't it? It's it was a tough such sell. a tough sell. Uh, if you've got yeah. butterflies, let's run out and get a butterfly Even garden. bees. Even yeah. bees have awesome. become sexy because yeah. people, you know, but pollination. Wasps. Native bees, yes. Mm. Well, pollinators is a, a thing of great interest to Claire. She's very worried that with increasing hazard reduction burns, that the pollinators are going. People have shown that after fires you get lots of orchids coming up, but they don't set seed. No pollinators. Uh, Yes, they're they're flowering profusely in that first 12 months after a fire. And the following year, there's a problem because the pollinators were burnt during the fire. And of course, the pollinators are not going to come into a burnt area just to get those orchids that are there so I think it's something we need to consider Fire management is a very difficult thing Um, a friend of ours, a National Parks Ranger said, oh you know fire ecology is not rocket science it's far harder than that Mm. (laughs) it is to get it all right, you know, fire is part of our um, part of the regeneration of our bushland but at the wrong time it can do a lot of damage to the ecology. The story is that fires are difficult to manage in January and February, which um, is when they do the most good for um, regenerating plant populations. In the summertime it is. Yes, summertime. You know, cracks the seeds, smoke, you've probably heard of smoke water, smoke will stimulate and... So the ground is prepared by a summer fire in, in some respects. And then when you get the winter rains, etc., you, you get results in the following spring. It's difficult with spring burns not to do damage. Lots of damage because for the bushes, a productive time. The argument is that by some, oh, but the habitat will be so much better afterwards for things like bandicoots and small mammals, reptiles... The thing we've got to remember is that there will be lots of losses in fires and in times gone by with patchwork burns, populations were were rebuilt through immigration from surrounding areas that weren't burnt. And the problem is now we've got great spaces between our patches of bushland. So, you know, fire ecology is a very difficult thing to manage. We have these things called houses as well, which... Really get in the way of fire ecology. There's nowhere to repopulate from. Yes. So we're a bit concerned about the future with more and more hazard uh, reduction burns. You know, people have to be safe, properties have to be protected, but they need more ecologists on their fire team. Yeah. I mean, I heard the other day that there's no evidence to suggest that these fuel reduction burns actually prevent those areas from burning if there is a fire. I think all the areas that were burnt still burnt again when there was a fire coming through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's a feature of our uh, flora that the hard leaf vegetation contains resins and oils to protect it from the dry heat. And, of course, the mallee on the Kangaroo Island burnt so beautifully. And, of course, there are two species over there that are used to produce oil, you know, Eucalypt leaves are loaded with oil, which is very flammable. So even if you burn all the leaf litter away from underneath and all the sticks and dry things, there's a lot of fire potential in the the crowns of trees. And, uh, of course, in the regeneration, you get massive amount of oil-bearing plants growing back. The answer is not obvious how we should tackle this problem. It is tricky. I mean, I've got a friend who's a park ranger that swears that we need to do more controlled burns. And then I've also heard that if we do more controlled burns, it favours the species of plants that like to burn. Yes. And we lose the maybe the older species of plant that have been around longer that predate maybe the sclerophorous species that 
they, they disappear because they're getting burnt out because they don't come back after fire. So then you end up with more flammable bush. You also change the structure. It was well worked out in the United States of America many, many years ago that forest and prairie retreated in advance depending on the fire regime. So if you take northern Australia where it's burnt across the top, people think fire is good. So you get more than patchwork burns across the north. Everything that can be burnt is burnt at, at the end of the wet. The people in tourism like it because it brings up lots of um, greenery in regeneration. You can get at the rock art. You can find your way into the rock art. It all looks good. The, the pastoralists like it because lots of green pickers, they call green shoots over there, get the fattening the cattle. So there's, there's a tendency to want fire, but there um, we will see in our subtropical regions, we've got um, tropical forests growing up against the escarpments and in gorges. With more and more fire, we'll gradually lose this. And um, there are so many grass species across northern Australia, they'll just proliferate and expand. And um, so it will change the landscape with this continuous fire regime every, at the end of the wet, every dry season. And the problem is that it leaves during the dry, the landscape covered in black ash, which absorbs heat and dries it out even more. And this is one of the problems with having spring burns down here. The woodlands that have been burnt in a prescribed burn have got all this black ash, heat absorbing, nothing to protect the soil. There's very little foliage in that first summer after the burn. There's a lot to be investigated here. As I say, it is... Um, Fire management in an ecological sense is very difficult to work out. And it's like we said before, if we lose plant diversity, then we lose mammal diversity, reptile diversity and diversity across the board. Yes. That's sad. A bit sad, isn't it? Mm. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing is that the microorganisms in the soil can get burnt and not be there for the plants that require them for their life. Of course, Australian plants depend on organisms to extract the phosphate and nitrogen from the soil. Uh, You know, rhizobium bacteria, you know, the acacias all have bacteria in nodules. So do the clover-like plants to extract nitrogen from the soil. And the phosphorus comes from fungi, mycorrhiza in the soil. If we get too much heat in the fires, too often regular fires will change the soil flora as well. According to most mycologists, the fungal people, they say that um, there's a great risk there that we can change that that fungal flora. And there's bacteria, also a whole suite of microorganisms that facilitate the growth of the plants. And the plants facilitate the growth of all sorts of animals. So um, it, it, it's a big thing to if you if you burn if you plan to burn every five years to keep um, the fuel load down, which some people say, look, if we don't burn it, the leaf litter will be up to the treetops. Well, it, it never has got that way anywhere, <laughs> because we have all these organisms, both insects, fungi, that uh, keep it down. The leaf litter needs to be broken down by microorganisms to make the soil, to put the humus into the soil, to hold the moisture. We will dry out the landscape with continuous burning. And we'll kill those organisms that we need to yes. do the job that the fire the whole, do. Our ecosystems will gradually collapse. It will be insidious. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen. The, the um, biodiversity will just go down. Because the main problem with biodiversity is there is too many of one species, (laughs) and that's us. 
Homo sapiens. We've mentioned that a few times in the show, haven't we, Stephen? Yes, you have. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not prepared to end my life now just to make a bit more space on the planet and cut down on resources. Well, it was worth a shot. (laughs) (laughs) We've we've often said it, and we have to say, because I actually had a friend of mine who I've spoke a lot with about this kind of, what you call it, ecological philosophy, and he was under the impression that I didn't really like people. And I thought, I couldn't be further from the truth. I am one. All my friends are people, <laughs> yes. um, and I'm dating one. You know, yes. I think they're all right. You know, I like them. It, it's not an anti-person thing. It's just a. It's just the in, impact that we all have as a species. And I, I love us so much that I want to talk about. Um, I don't. I don't like using the term overpopulation, but you know, I want to talk about that because I care about future generations so much, and I want them to have biodiversity. And I want. I love biodiversity too. You know. I, yes. The- when uh, we were having our children in the 70s, we got um, messages from friends saying, right, you've had two, now that's your quota. That was the zero population growth days. But you're probably well aware of what's happened since people said, well, technology will allow the human population to keep growing. The technology will allow us to keep producing enough food. So it was two children even yeah. back then? Yes, the replacement, oh, wow. you know, just to replace yourselves. I remember in the 90s I was saying have one for mum, one for dad and one for the country. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In the 90s, that was the politicians. It was about economics. It's about economics, yeah. Yeah, it's a very anthropocentric way to look at it. Yes. Well, most things are. Humans are a species that, like every other species, they do their best to survive and reproduce. Yeah. The biological meaning of life. Yeah, no, that's right. And look, I'm all for it and... uh, I'm not one of those I hate people, I prefer animal type people. But yeah, we need to we need to talk about the big picture and where we're heading with it all that yes. conversations that you don't hear very often. The big picture I think is we're heading to very simplistic ecosystems. Monoculture. Well, yeah, even with ecosystems like you say. You've got your book here that you guys have been involved in, it's focus on flora, native plants of the Adelaide Hills and Barossa. And that's I must point out that we were only a small part of a team. It's not my book. It wouldn't have been the same without you. It wouldn't have been. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got the book that you guys made on your own. Maybe you had some help. I'm not sure. Um, so <laughs> You're a stirrer, Adrian. You're a stirrer. I've known this for a long time, but <laughs> but I mean, but this region. I mean, this is one of the biodiversity hotspots in Australia, and Australia is yeah. one of the biodiversity hotspots on the planet. And there are all these people that live here that would be unaware of that. And those areas of great diversity are few and far between now. They're, like you said before, fragmented, disjunct, isolated, surrounded by farmland, you know, cities and suburbs. It's tricky, isn't it? It is. Their purpose is to try and show people what we have in our bushlands. If people don't know about it, they won't support funding for it. Uh, So it's a long hope. But um, we do presentations to various groups. I think mostly we're preaching to the converted. They're all organisations that are involved in nature in some way or another. But one of the things we like to get across is that we've got a lot of beautiful flowers and plants and non-flowering plants, like the ferns can be really interesting, and they don't flower The features of our plants tend to be exquisite, small plants, small flowers, but they can be beautiful. And what we hope to do is reveal that hidden structure, that hidden beauty to people. So our plan, our project is to do survey work to show where things still exist, to produce um, high-resolution digital images for the future, so that people can still look into the structure of these plants that may not be here and to bring the beautiful side of our biodiversity. Not everything in nature is beautiful. We've got beautiful reptiles, we've got beautiful mammals, we've got beautiful birds and they're beautiful plants and we hope to show the beautiful side of the plant world in our region. You don't have to go to Queensland. You don't have to go to the tropics. Just as you don't have to go to the barrier reef to see reef fish, we've got them uh, tremendous diversity in our uh, our rocky reef fish along the coast. And 
we've got many, many enthusiasts that go diving to see the tremendous diversity we've got in our marine life. Well, just as you don't have to go a long way to see that, um, we've got so much out in our hills here. So hopefully when people are out doing their walks, they might pause every now and again and look at what's around them. And it might spark an interest in them. It might make them passionate to contact a minister and you know, work on yes. protecting these things. I mean, there's a lot, yes. of, a lot of ministers are just career politicians want to keep their job and they want to appease the people. And if the noisy people are saying, we don't, we've got to clear this, we've got to burn that, we want people that have an ecological mindset to be contacting the yes. ministers because their job is to appease the people because they yes. want to be voted in. So we've got to be noisy to those people. Yes, at the moment all of our conservation parks are fast heading towards recreation parks, more bike trails, more walking, you know, getting people out in the bush. But it, then we used to have a classification system. We had national parks, conservation parks, recreation parks. But in the conservation parks there still needs to be a significant focus on conservation. The money is spent on the recreational side. It's a bit of a worry, so we hope to show people that there's lots out in these things on their walks, or perhaps if they slow down on their mountain bike, they might see something interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's a, look, it's a hard sell. I mean, I'm I've been talking to school kids for 12 years in this business. I've got Animals Anonymous, as you know, and I'll get up there and I'll talk about habitat and spill my guts. And I have native animals because they wouldn't let me in the door without them. And at the end. Any questions? Yeah, where do I get a pet snake from? You know, and, yeah. and it's a common question. And look, that's how I started off. You know, I had pet lizards as a kid, so it's a, it's a baby step. But it's sort of frustrating because we're at dire straits, and you wanna you wanna see action now. But I think there's a lot of positives. A lot of young people are getting into bird watching, and it's yes. a, a, you know, a pair of binoculars, and they're out there with their bird book. It's cheap, it's easy, it's fun, and you know, it's good to see. Yes. Um, and there's a lot of young people into plants. I mean, there's a there's social media groups just dedicated to natural history. Um, yes. And that, there are a lot of positives too. Yes, there are. We, we don't want to get too depressed about things. <laughs> <laughs> it's so addictive, like, to get into a hobby like that. Like the plants, I'm into my reptiles, mainly pythons. Um, yeah, but it gets so addictive. Like we were talking to Tim just, Sorry, I'll stop you there. You're into pythons, Steve. <laughs> Did you not know? We should do a podcast about it. <laughs> We're talking about uh, talking to Tim Faulkner about these things and, and how addictive it can be to actually get out there and try and like he now has he seen every bird in Australia or something? I'm not sure, but that's his but goal. Isn't that's it? his goal, yes. and you just like it, it's so addictive. And you guys would find that with the plants as oh, well. Oh yes, we get out there, and uh, that's what we like to do. We're out in the bush, all quiet just finding plants and taking photographs when we can and when we find something at the right stage but, um, we have lots of close-up encounters with uh, with reptiles in the field dragons the skinks the snakes and the birds and the mammals you were saying to me once you saw a yellow-footed antichinus in the middle of the day yes up, we have um, that lofty summit Good oh yes yes on the main running track that goes between the two coffee stops, the one a kiosk at the bottom and the kiosk at yeah, the top. Yeah, it's a good effort. It's a bit of a thoroughfare sometimes. Yeah, oh, yes. Well, you know, they like to bask in the sun, don't they? And so it came out. It was, must have been a bit of a quiet spot. We were at one of the wet spots along there taking photos of the swamp plants that were growing on the edge of the track because it, it cuts straight through a, um, a perch swamp. There have been efforts to relocate that track but it would alter too many people's run times. Is that so, all the coral fern that's on yeah, that steep bit that's there? that's right. Okay. And uh, it would, I think it would alter too many times. People would have to change to accommodate a new track. They didn't want it anyway. It was overwhelmingly voted down by the people that responded about rerouting the so-called walking track between uh, uh, Waterfall Gully and uh, Mount Lofty Summit. So... Um, the track still goes through one of the most uh, interesting and diverse bits in Cleveland. It's an amazing oh, plant, wow. that coral fern. Yeah. Mm. Oh, well, it's, it's what grows on the edge of the walking track because it gets mm. more light. The coral fern is pruned back and you've got this disturbed area on the edge. You get fork sundews coming up there, pygmy sundews, oh, and native irises, and um, one of your favourite plants, the ploughshare wattle, grows nearby and oh, keeps yeah. getting pruned back <laughs> to make room. Yes. But um, the main worry is if um, 
if the tracks are surfaced with something that alters the pH and the mineral composition around the around the edges of the track, then you lose those uh, small plants that need the uh, right pH soil, etc. So we had Professor Rob Morrison on the show, and he's got that coral fern growing in his backyard. Yes. Oh, that's right, down the bottom. Yeah, yeah, down, yeah, yeah. I remember him talking yeah. about that. It's interesting because that's a threatened species, but it also threatens all the small species in the swamp. Well, I heard that they were clearing bits of it because there's like an, a really, really, really rare orchid growing in amongst it, and there's only a few of these orchids left, so they had to clear this threatened plant well, to make way affects, for an endangered one. It, it, yes, it does. <laughs> it, it, you see, this needs appropriate management. Well, you can't just fence off areas and, you know, set and forget sort of thing. We have a much reduced environment for these things to grow in. There's a lot of competition in a small space and we don't have patchwork burns and there's disturbances to the flow regimes of water from springs, etc. It's very competitive in that small space and uh, again in Cleland there are there are swamp areas there that get overgrown with the coral fern glycenia and it needs to be managed. It can be slashed, it can be burnt. All these things done at the right time are beneficial to all the smaller plants that need their window in the sun. Succession, ecologists worked out many years ago, generally takes 20 years or so. It's quite long term to go after um, a major disturbance to get back to what it was. In the meantime, there'll be habitat loss for many small species and they'll need that major disturbance to come back again. But the good news is that the propagules can persist in the soil for a long time, provided it doesn't get too hot. But um, down at Glenshearer Swamp, there were many drains dug after World War II. And a few years ago, as part of restoration of the swamps, some of those drains were backfilled so that the water wouldn't rip through the swamp and out the other side. The swamps, especially peat swamps, are great regulators of water flow. They take it in, store it, and filter it and release it slowly over the summer so it really wasn't doing a lot of good downstream to have this water ripping through the swamp. Anyway, so they these drains were backfilled. Now, the interesting thing is that after the, the mounds were removed, a whole lot of plants came up that could have only come from seed that had been there all those years. Wow. And uh, some of them hadn't been seen in numbers for some years because they were quite rare in the swamp. Here they were. They had their moment in the sun and the water because the mound was removed and the mounds was a metre and a half tall in some cases. Sometimes they're only a metre. But um, So the good news that came out of that is a lot of these propagules, and by that we mean seed or tubers or rhizomes, can live undisturbed in the soil for a long period of time. So there's the great hope. Mm. We do have to be careful with how we manage these natural systems. As I said, you can't just fence them off and forget. They become totally overgrown, not only by glycenia, but also blackberry, etc. And, and all the small things don't get a, a chance. We have, you know, have an amazing array of small ferns, comb ferns, for instance, that just don't get a chance unless um, they get their moment in the sun. They've got to have the water as well. The story is if we want to maintain our biodiversity, we need to manage the environment carefully with much consideration without taking too many things for granted and making too many assumptions. It needs that we need to follow up what's happening when we make changes. We had Dr John Wamsley on the show and he's got a bush block a couple of blocks away from here and he was talking about native woody weeds which is an interesting concept so things like the pioneering species like your acacias and you know, yes. tea trees or yes. most of the shrubs basically like he'll have some shrubs on his property he's got tall stringy bark you know trees and he's got then everything else is kind of shin high ankle high kind of diversity on the ground but if he was to leave that all these shrubs would come in and he would lose it it's like we yes. were talking earlier about a lot of the the really interesting small things often come up alongside the trail because it's open yes, and they've got the yes, space and the sunlight. Yes. We need to be vigilant, we need to be alert and watching what's going on and how we can best manage it. 
a lot of the solutions are really obvious. Well, short-term solutions, I don't know about the longer term in regard to the planet. Most of the science has been done and what wasn't done formally in terms of science years ago was observed by naturalists with a keen eye for what was going on. Well, that's good because the scientists are always listened to by the politicians, aren't they? Well, (laughs) they interpret the science to suit themselves. The word science is bandied around. A lot of it's not real science. A lot of politicians are popularists. They want to be voted in and they want to appease the people. So it's really the job of people like yourself and I guess us and the Aussie Wildlife Show is to try to hopefully inspire people to become a bit more biodiversity-minded ecologically minded, ecocentric as opposed to being anthropocentric Yes. so hopefully that sways the votes maybe they can think about the future of everything rather than just the bottom line financially there's a global movement against this economics dictating everything climate change has brought this about so. Are you positive about the future Claire? I think in some areas yes and in some areas we have to enjoy what we see now and hope that it will still be there for the next generation. If you look at it, the history of mankind on the planet, diversity has been slipping away pretty well since man developed tools, humans developed tools, I should say, since humans developed tools. If you look at the birthplace of civilization in the Middle East, the birthplace of agriculture, that's where the desert started. <laughs> Well, yeah, we were talking about that, weren't we, Steve? We're like, mm. Egypt probably wasn't built in a desert. And the Great Pyramids, that was probably quite a nice area there. They probably thrashed it. Possibly. Well, <laughs> we, dom- we domesticated goats and sheep in particular, and they had a big impact on the environment. We cleared the land to plant crops. Well, we need to eat, don't we? But being realists, we know that the human species has had a huge impact on the planet and we're responsible for the loss of a lot of species loss of biodiversity now it's going to continue but we hope that for a few more generations at least people will be able to uh, enjoy the magnificent uh, diversity we have you know we feel lucky that the megafauna still exists in the major continents you know like the north america and asia and africa and years to come, nobody will see an elephant in the wild. It's not that far away, according to people that crunch the numbers. Well, 10, 12,000 years ago, North America had more elephants than there are in Africa today. Yes. yes, there's always a lot of debate about what role early man has had over the extinction of the megafauna of North America. Well, you've got the bison left, haven't you? But there were a lot of other big, what did they call the elephants that were there? Um, they had mammoths, other uh, yeah. mastodons. Yeah, yeah. So you know, being realistic, diversity will continue to decline. But we would like people to see the sorts of things that we've seen. We, being realists, we know that there was more around when our fathers were in the bush than there is now. Back in the fifties, there was more diversity in this state in the bush than there is now. So, you know, a lot of people are completely oblivious to it and it doesn't interest them anyway. We've had experiences such as that when we've been on that um, track between um, Waterfall Gully and Mount Lofty. People said, what are you doing? Looking for gold. That's the most <laughs> common thing. What are you doing? Looking for gold. <laughs> and when they explain uh, uh, what we're doing... Oh, I'm back to the cricket or something else very quickly, or whatever's coming through their earphones. So it, it, it doesn't interest a lot of people. We just hope to show more people that there is a lot of interest in the diversity of life, all with their separate life histories. They've all got this problem of surviving and reproducing and getting the next generation to adulthood. And they've been around and evolved you know, they haven't always been in their present form or associations no. for millennia. They've existed and... There are things... The interesting thing is there are some life forms that have been incredibly successful. There's that large fish called the coelacanth that still exists and goes back in time 
to prehistoric times. Is that a lungfish? Uh, no. Well, that's another interesting story. It's not a lungfish. This is a marine fish that is one of the lobe fins that people are interested in in the evolution of, you know, tetrapods, things with limbs, four limbs. We have one of the most interesting of the three species of lungfish. There's a species in Africa, there's a species in South America, and there's a species in Queensland in the Burnett River and then one other river nearby, which has always been threatened by um, building dams, but so far the dam has been postponed. It hasn't been viable for one reason or another. But they have the most well-developed fins that are lobe-like of any lungfish. The other uh, lungfish have fins that look like sand swimmers' legs. <laughs> Being mm-hmm. reptile people, you know what I mean? <laughs> they don't, without the toes. <laughs> They don't even have two toes. But, um, yes, that lungfishes are a real interesting evolutionary step. It's uh, something that we have in Australia, other than our marsupials and monotremes that are world-renowned. There's a lot in the diversity. You, you're both reptile people. You'd know the diversity of reptiles is tremendous. We have a lot to be thankful for in our diversity. There's so much interest. Well, what we find interesting, don't we, Claire? <laughs> you know, moths, butterflies, anything that moves and things that grow, move by growing are interesting, like plants and fungi. A lot of people probably would say, well, we're losing it, but that's okay because we can slip into virtual reality. It is what it is. You know, this is we're life, computers are life. I mean, you're a computer person, Clive. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's a tool, though. It's a tool, uh, but it's a natural thing because yeah. we're natural and we made it. Maybe we can stimulate our minds through other means and we can just plug into the matrix. Well, I'd say <laughs> the thing is there's nothing like seeing something in the flesh, the real thing. We see it all the time, don't we? We like to think we take fairly good photographs and capture things fairly well in detail, but it's nothing like seeing it in the bush. Mm. I think and the last thing we want is everyone looking on computers even more than they do. You can, you can have a, a great description of a species, you can have photographs to go with it, but once you've seen the real thing, you can spot them at 20 metres in the bush. You know, there's something about seeing the actual organism. Bird watchers would say that. You reptile enthusiasts would say that, I'm sure. You know, there, there would be no interest in just seeing snakes or lizards on a screen. That, that, well, is there, that, like in, in books, you read books and things, but actually there, there's nothing that comes close to actually seeing I think animals. I think there's an interest in it, but it makes you want to go out and it see makes it. You yeah, want to go out that's right. yeah, I guess that's a positive yeah. point. Yeah. And that's what I found with the plant books. I mean... It is a hard sell to get someone into plants. There's something really captivating about, you know, fluffy, cute animals and yes. reptiles, like we said before. But when you when you do start looking at the intricacies of some of these plants and just spend some time looking at field guides of plants, it sounds like a crazy thing to do for some people, but you start seeing the diversity and the interest is there and then you get excited about wanting to see it in the wild. I think I've used that analogy before about collector cards. You know, yes. oh, that's a common one, that's a common one. Oh, that's a really rare one and that gets you really excited and you know about it and you've heard about it and then you've got one in your hand and that's just a bit of paper that somebody made. These are organisms with a story, you know. And there's still things to discover for yourself. Now, Claire made a discovery. A lot of people are interested in sundews and carnivorous plants. Mm. Well, Claire wondered why she had trouble getting the common rosette sundew, Drosera whittakeri, getting all the nice beads of dew, the sticky beads that trap the insects, at the same time as the plants were flowering. We have looked at all our photographs and done more observation after she questioned this and found two things. One, that all of the sundews in this state have a mechanism, a life history mechanism, the way they grow and develop, that separates pollinators from prey. They don't want to digest their pollinators. Ah. Not that plants want to do anything. That's a poor way of putting it, I suppose. But it's not good for the plant to digest its pollinators. So in the case of the rosette sundew, it does two things. It puts up these great big white flowers 
and multiples at once and they virtually cover the rosette so that an insect coming down lands, it's got this great big white landing platform. <laughs> Don't uh, die, and, I need you. <laughs> and it goes straight into the centre. The other thing is that they turn off the production of the sticky enzymic dew when they're flowering. That all comes before. And one of the most interesting ones is a precocious plant. Now they call it precocious because it puts up its flowers before its leaves. And this is a, the best way yet of separating pollinators and prey because the flowers come straight out of the hard clay. They get pollinated, fall over, then the leaves come out, the sticky hairs come up and the plant starts capturing all this nitrogen in the form of small insects and putting it down into its tuber, which provides the energy to produce the flowers at the beginning of the next season. That's that's fascinating. Wow. Yeah, that's we, and we've got those here, those little white sundews. Yes, Drosera wittekeri. Yes, um, I know I'm a scented sundews, although I've been down on my yeah. hands and knees and I can't smell a thing. Although I'm probably soggy. It's now called Whitakeri. Whitaker's sundew, because the scented one's another species. Like many plant yeah. groups, they found there are more species. When people studied them closely, they found more species. I've got to get you back here, Clive. I said to Clive the other day, I've got 106 species here so far that I've found, and you said, you've got a lot more than that. I'm like, okay, good. <laughs> um, and you found one tonight. We went for a quick walk. Um, but I, I know of three of the sundews. They, they, they yes. call them carnivorous plants. And yes, so that's that's really fascinating. That's really really mm. good to know. They have that enzyme on the little the fluid that comes up on the hairs. Are they, are they what are they? They digesting insects somehow? What yes, doing and there? and what's more, people they people have been interested in all the mechanisms like pitcher plants and things trapping insects and Venus flytraps, and they did, thought that with our sundews it was very passive, but again if you study photos and especially if you take a slow motion time-lapse photography as soon as an insect a little fly hits one of those hairs all the hairs around it lean into it so that it gets you, you can go out and see this for yourself find a sundew and if you find an insect there you'll find it's not stuck on one or two hairs but all the hairs around it are directed into the insect wow savage so that's proper carnivorous plant when it does that. <laughs> it's not just stuck there, it's actually holding it. It's yeah. like a spider grabbing its insect yeah. and wrapping it up quickly. It, it, it's very hard yeah. to get clean photos of these because they're full of partially digested bits of insects, all the chitin. And so it just melts the insect down well, it's and absorbs it into the leaves or something, does it? Or? Yeah, the, it takes it in through the, the hairs itself, I think. They're glandular hairs. And um, these glandular, there are glandular hairs on many plants, and the trigger plants now they think that um, some of the glandular hairs on the trigger plants, the trigger mechanism is all about pollination. Now you're uh, talking about the stylidiums now, aren't you? yes, we've that's got right. Those here too. Yes, well they think now that if you look at those glandular hairs on there, they look a bit like the ones on the sundews, and and the, there is some evidence now that they um, have some digestive capacity and they can supplement the see here again you see these our soils are low nitrogen and this is yet another mechanism that another life history mechanism that these carnivorous plants supplement the poor nitrogen in the damp grounds and they live in peaty grounds and swamps and mostly well watered areas where the nitrogen is leached out and uh, so it's another example of australian plants living and largely impoverished soils and being able to extract the essential elements for plant growth, you know, two of them being nitrogen and phosphorus. Getting it from insects? The nitrogen comes from the insects. It's a nitrogen supplementation because there's nitrogen poor in the soil. Yes. Just, just for the listener, the trigger plant, it, well, the one we have here, it looks like a little, it's a little flower, it looks like almost like a butterfly-shaped flower, and then when you, you stick a, well, the insect would... I don't know, stick this proboscis down into the, the throat. I'm using all the right terms here, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Um, and then this little trigger thing comes from underneath that you don't even see until the last second. It just f comes across, and often it's covered in pollen, and because you could put a little stick down it, and you see a little puff of pollen yes. come up. So the idea is it's putting the pollen on the insect, and the insect's then taking that pollen yes. and getting oh, so other... So it does let the insect go? It's a very specialised... Sometimes, yes. apparently, yeah. sometimes it doesn't, I'm hearing. Yeah. It's a very specialised structure. It um, has both the male and female parts on the end of that 
arm that comes down and whacks the insect. Okay. So if if the anthers are ripe, it'll shed pollen onto the insect. If the anthers aren't ripe, it'll probably pick up pollen from the insect for the um, ah. stigma, the female receptors of the plant. Ah. All in the one structure, the one whacking structure. One. <laughs> That's great. I've never, I've wanted to do this, and you might be able to answer this for me, but like when you flick it and it triggers up and the arm stays up then, does it make its way back down again? Or yes, is that it does. They down? reload. They reload. And it's the same with the duck orchids. When it um, gets an insect on there, a pollinator, the beak on the head of the duck orchid wax down on there because it's upside down. The labellum's at the top. The lip's up the top. It's an upside-down fl- orchid flower. So, um, you know, the, the duck orchids are just amazing. And people don't believe they're real. But uh, we have three species of them in the state. And the large duck's the one that looks most like a flying duck. <laughs> but uh, they... they um, they relax after an hour or so and put the head back up again. That's, <laughs> That's all about pollen. So it whacks its head into its breast. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I've only ever seen them in pictures. Yes. I've never seen yes. a duck orchid. I'd love to see a duck orchid. Come to the Australian Plant Society in, what is it, June, because we were giving a presentation on all the interest. Well, we try to find the most interesting plants in our local environment, and duck orchids are always a favourite. And so are trigger plants, and so are sundews. The orchids always come to the end of the plant lists in, in the systematic arrangement of plants because they're um, thought to be the most highly evolved. They're certainly rapidly evolving. Anyway, it's very handy because that means the orchids always come to the end in my presentation, and it keeps people there until the end because they don't <laughs> want to see the orchids. Orchids are favourite. You've got to put one third orchids in to keep people happy. <laughs> that's great. That's great that you're showing people like these tiny little flowers, but you can yeah. blow them up on a big. Yes, screen. that's right. They end up, yeah. you know, meters square. It's a whole nother world. I love that you. I saw you tonight walking around with your ten times loop, getting up close to things and showing me things on plants. And it's been so long since I've actually done that, and it's just such a great thing to do. It's a whole nother world, isn't it? It is. I've got to get you guys back again in springtime because there's so many more species here, and there's a lot that the names have changed because that's always a thing with plant names changing. And um, I'd like to have a good solid list of what's here so I can show people when they come and get there's a excited. story attached to every one. Mm. Um, and I've learnt so much tonight from this conversation. Guys, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, yeah, that yeah. was great. Yeah. You're welcome. Will you, will you come on again? Will you yes. do it again? Yes. Yeah. Awesome. We will, thank won't you. we? Yeah. Be awesome. Good. Guys, thank you so much. And thank, thank you so much for the work you do. And guys, thank you for listening. <laughs>